How do you feel about the place you call home? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Growing up in Utah, Terry Tempest Williams' grandmother taught her to use field guides as a kind of sacred text. This love of nature has shaped how she looks at the world today. I love Great Salt Lake. I think it's a magical place. It's our Serengeti. It's a beautiful reflective mirror that calls birds home. I think it's heaven. Stay with us as Terry Tempest Williams shares lessons that her mother, her grandmother, and even the land itself have imparted. And it's a bedrock truth. Let us be conservative. Let us be prudent. Let us protect these lands that define us as Americans and protect what protects us. Plus, a tour guide from Italy tells us what it's like to be alone with nature at night in the Sahara Desert. You have to put the, the sunglasses because even without the moon, there are so many stars. It's so white. There's wisdom from the desert in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll get a view of the world from a motorbike in the Sahara Desert in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. First, though, I have the good fortune to talk with Terry Tempest Williams. She's hard to classify, but there's no doubt she's a remarkable voice whose intelligence, passion, and compassion are inspiring. She's an intellectual, a naturalist, and an outspoken environmental activist on behalf of her native Utah and the Western United States. Her books often read like poetry as she explores themes of spirituality, conservation, of natural history, women's issues, and of the impact of her family's Mormon heritage on her own identity today. In her book, When Women Were Birds, Terry tackles a mystery her mother left behind after her death, and she explores how that puzzle influences her own voice many years later. Terry, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Rick. It's an honor to be on your program. Utah is just a place that, that just has such drama, and it's so vast and, and magnificent in so many ways, and your family has been in, in Utah since Mormon pioneer days, hasn't it? That's right. Uh, five, six generations. Now, you wrote a book, When Women Were Birds. It's your latest book. Tell us, what is the premise of the book, and, and how does that relate to your value of your, your heritage and your homeland? When Women Were Birds focuses on my mother's journals. My mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She was dying. I was lying on the bed with her, rubbing her back. She was facing the window. It was a wicked January day. And she said, Terry, I'm leaving you all my journals, but you have to promise me you won't look at them until after I'm gone. I gave her my word. We continued talking about other things. A week later, she passed. A month later, I found myself in the family home, and I thought, now, now, finally, I can know what my mother was thinking, feeling. She was a very private woman, Rick. Um, the journals were exactly where she said they would be, three shelves, each one beautifully cloth-bound, unique. I opened the first one. It was empty. I opened the second one. It was empty. The third was empty. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Shelf after shelf after shelf, all my mother's journals were blank. So that's what this book is about. Why? What was my mother trying to say? What couldn't she say? Was she saying, fill them? Was it an act of defiance? Uh, Mormon women are expected to do two things keep a journal and bear children. Um, I don't know. It felt like a cruel joke. It felt like a second death. I remember just picking up the journals, putting them in my car, driving them home, putting them on my shelves, and through the years, you know, just writing in them unceremoniously. So it's really a book about voice. What is it? How do we find our voice? How do we keep it? 
if we lose it, how do we retrieve it? And I think each of us struggles with that. This was your mother's gift to you then, was just a reminder to, to speak your voice, to find your voice, to, to fill up the journal of your life. Is that the idea? You know, I, I don't know. I, yes, I mean, it definitely has been a gift, what she bequeathed to me. But I'm not sure I will ever know what mm. she was really trying to say. But what I love is that she gave me a mystery, um, almost like a Buddhist cone and a kaleidoscope that I just keep turning mm-hmm. toward the light, and it always reveals a different configuration. When when young people are going to Europe and uh, they want one piece of advice from me, I, I say, write a journal, <laughs> write a journal. You'll treasure it for the lef- rest of your life. Well, I love, I have to tell you, I'm a fan of your packing list. Mm-hmm. And I love that on that list is a hardbound journal. When you say it will be a treasure that you will keep always, the most important thing. And I believe that. I personally keep journals simultaneously a notebook, a day book, um, a more formal journal, Mm -hmm. field notes, Mm -hmm. and they are precious. Mm -hmm. Um, They serve as a sketchbook for me, but none are as precious as my mother's empty journals, and I still have some that I have not written in. And I think it is, um, in our culture, in Mormon culture, in Utah, there is a silencing that occurs um, from the dominant culture, and, you know, I hope that that's changing. But... A silencing. What what do you mean by that, Terry? Well, you know, I think as a woman, I can only tell you that, you know, I was raised not to speak out, uh, not to rock the boat, make waves. And suddenly, because of the land that I love and the threat that it is under this beautiful red rock wilderness, I have spoken out with many, many others. Hmm. And I think there are some people that wish that I hadn't or wouldn't. And I I just think if we care about the land, if we care about the open space of democracy, um, if we care about citizenship, then we do speak out. And my mother spoke out very strongly to her family, but outside she she was much more reticent. And I think her empty journals speak to that, that if she had written Mm. the truth of her life, um, she might have viewed it as a betrayal to those she loved, or, or, you know, perhaps she was trying to protect those she loved, because if she told the truth, it would hurt. Terry Tempest Williams reminds us that beauty is not optional. It's a strategy for survival. We're talking with her today on Travel with Rick Steves about a book she wrote after her mother left behind a mystery following her death. It's called When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. Terry's also a scholar at Dartmouth College and has been a writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School, where she's been writing about the spiritual implications of climate change. You'll find links to our earlier conversations with Terry in our radio archives at ricksteves.com radio. I, w- I was fascinated by the, at the end of your book, you were arrested for demonstrating for the environment, and they frisked you, and they found a pen and a pad of paper And the person who arrested you said, what's this? And you said, weapons. Yes, uh, that was in 1987, a long time ago. And in subsequent years, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, in Utah, and this is part of our atomic history in the West, nuclear bombs were tested above ground in the desert in Nevada from 1952 to 1961. Then they went underground and were repeatedly tested until 1992. 
We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. So there were many of us here living in Utah and the American Southwest, you know, along with Native peoples, the Paiute people, the Shivwitz people, and people from Kazakhstan who are sisters and brothers of nuclear testing. When I crossed that line at the Nevada test site in the name of civil disobedience, I not only crossed a physical line, but a metaphorical line, a political line. And yes, when I was frisked, um, pen and pad of paper, weapons, she let me keep them. I remember she discreetly, you know, left them in my boot, put my trouser down, and, and I was able to take notes. Well, you were speaking out or writing out in interest of what you call the clan of one-breasted women. Yes, nine women in my family have all had mastectomies, seven are dead. Um, half of my family has been diagnosed with cancer from radioactive fallout. It is a story, one story in an anthology of thousands in the state of Utah. And the Atomic Commission, they had a booklet and you wrote about it, it said, your best action is not to be worried about fallout. And then you talked about silenced, and, and your mother in, in this context said, just let it go. And then, and then right. you just realized this is sort of a, a breakthrough moment, or not a breakthrough moment, but a chance to really step out of that straitjacket and just be honest. I remember one sentence in particular uh, shaking as I wrote it, blind obedience in the name of patriotism or religion ultimately takes our lives. And uh, after that sentence, I couldn't go back. But I can tell you, you know, my father, who's who's still alive, he's 79 years old. Members of my family, my uncle, who served in the Utah State Senate. Politics is changing in Utah because the people are changing, because we see our relationship to the land here and what it means to us. But it's, it's not easy, and it takes revolutionary patience. and It takes people who are written off as, what, what was the word, virtual uninhabitant? Isn't that amazing? That's amazing that the government would call you and all the people that lived in that sort of corner of our beautiful country virtual uninhabitants. Right. The bombs were tested never when the winds were blowing toward Los Angeles, always when they were blowing toward Indian lands and Mormon country because we are God-fearing people, people that they perceived that didn't have voices. It was fascinating to read how you remember a flash that you thought was a dream, but it actually, when you looked back on it, did it happen? Do I do my arithmetic correctly when you were two years old? That's exactly right, Rick. And, you know, after my mother passed away, um, I kept having this reoccurring dream, this nightmare, this flash of light in the night in the desert, illuminating buttes and mesas over and over, this flash of light in the desert. My father and I were having dinner. He said, tell me how you are. I said, not not well. I keep having this nightmare, this flash of light in the night in the desert. And he said, Terry, you saw that. I thought you knew that. I was so stunned. He said, I remember the day. It was September 7th. It was a day before your birthday. Um, We were driving home from California. You were two years old. Diane was pregnant with Steve. You were sitting on her lap. We were driving toward Las Vegas. It was an hour or so before dawn, this explosion. I thought the oil tanker in front of us had blown up. We pulled to the side, and then rising from the desert, this golden-stemmed cloud, the mushroom. This was the flash that killed, indirectly, over time, half the women in your beautiful family. Yeah, 
and uh, my brother and others. You know, I think it was then I realized the deceit we'd been living under as children growing up in the American Southwest, drinking contaminated milk from contaminated cows, even the breast milk of our mothers, members of the clan of one-breasted women. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terry Tempest Williams, who's uh, an author and a naturalist and an outspoken environmental activist, and Terry's book, When Women Were Birds. Where sun and wind play on a ring of bright water, that's where my heartland will be. The deer on the hill in the first snow of winter, the gull in the sky winging free. It echoes your laughter to me. There's more in a minute as we look at the American West through the eyes of author and environmental activist Terry Tempest Williams today on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, we'll meet a tour guide from Italy who tells us what it's like to voyage solo across the quiet emptiness of the Sahara Desert. We're at 877-333-7425. We're getting an intimate look at life in Utah from the perspective of native-born Terry Tempest Williams. She's a much-admired author of books and articles that weave themes of identity and landscape, faith and resistance. She writes what she calls a personal topography of America's national parks in the Hour of Land. Terry explores the mysteries of her mother's life in her book When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. I was recently uh, driving into uh, Salt Lake City and driving by this great salt lake, and uh, I just thought, this is just a big salty wasteland, and then I'm coming into (laughs) Salt Lake City, and then I read your book, and it's just a jungle of, of all sorts of natural and and historic and environmental wonder. Tell us about appreciating uh, Utah and specifically the Great Salt Lake. Well, I have to tell you, my father would be in agreement with you. He does (laughs) think it's a a floating cesspool. And on summer nights, uh, if the wind blows just right, you can smell sulfur. And uh, there's a lot of brine flies as well as shrimp. I love Great Salt Lake. It's the size of Delaware and Rhode Island. I think it's a magical place. It's our Serengeti. Um, It's a beautiful reflective mirror that calls birds home. Hundreds of species, everything from avocets to black-necked stilts to Mm. long-billed curlews. I think it's heaven. And it is a body of water that nobody can drink in the desert. Well, that's interesting. Now, on your anniversary, I love the way you wrote about how you toasted to marriage and to the indomitable spirit of the Great Salt Lake. Why would you mix that together on your anniversary? Great question. Uh, Great Salt Lake is a grand paradox. I think marriage is too. Nothing is as it appears. And what I love about Great Salt Lake is it it can't be controlled in the same way that I think marriage is Mm. a wild landscape. Great Salt Lake is a wild landscape. I love Great Salt Lake. It it holds you. You do float. Um, There's bison out on Antelope Island and... Every time I go out there, I see something miraculous. It stretches Hmm. your eyes. I find it so interesting that you've got this pioneer heritage. You're a member of the Mormon Church. You call yourself an unconventional Mormon, I believe. And then you think about Brigham Young, who would have been, you know, from your clan, like the the patriarch. And he took his 
band of faithful followers out there, 1847, stood right there and said, this is the place. How do you tie your Mormon heritage and your love of nature and your concern for environmental justice and so on all together? I don't think there's any separation. I mean, my ancestors came to Great Salt Lake for religious sovereignty. The Salt Desert was a perfect place. They didn't think they would be persecuted because who else would come live Mm -hmm. here? They quickly learned that there were many Native people that lived here prior. But I think a love of land, a love of place, a love of family tied to a spiritual sensibility of land is deeply rooted in the traditional Mormon values. That's changed, I think, in many ways. As Harold Bloom has said, the Mormon religion is the American religion. It's become much more uh, conservative, much more corporate. Nevertheless, it is community-based, and I, I love that about it. They are my people. It's a language I understand. But I think Utah is changing politically because the people in Utah are changing, and I think largely because of the beauty of the land. Most of Utah's landscape is owned by the federal government, either in forests or BLM, Bureau of Land Management. We have 22 million acres of BLM lands. We're asking Congress for 9.2 million acres to be protected as wilderness, as part of America's Red Rock Wilderness Bill. We're hoping that Canyonlands National Park can be expanded to the million acres that Secretary Udall originally advocated for in 1961 under President Kennedy's administration. So the land still dictates and drives us. Is there a struggle? Yes, there is. Right now, I can tell you that our governor, um, Governor Herbert, would love to see these federal lands be taken out of the government jurisdiction and be sold off to the highest bidder. So you can imagine that there is a contention here among us. There is a lively debate going on. I loved that our governor said, you know, we wouldn't sell off our national parks. So that was a a great relief. Um, We have five national parks in Utah. It's not a drive-by state. It it is a reservoir for our spirit. It it brings you to your knees. And Mm. You can't take yourself very seriously living in Utah because the land is so grand before us. That is powerful. It's easy to take yourself seriously, but when you get surrounded by the vast immensity and power of nature, it it is a beautifully humbling thing, isn't it? It is, and I think that's part of the reason why we're saying with all of the oil and gas development that is occurring on our public lands, with Utah being the only state in the United States that is now being slated for tar sands development in a land that has very little water, we're in a drought condition, and at a time when we have a nuclear power plant that is slated for development construction on the banks of the Green River, we are saying, let us be conservative, let us be prudent, let us protect these lands that define us as Americans and protect what protects us. And it's a bedrock truth that these red rocks tell time differently. And again, as you suggest, remind us what it means to be human in a very humble way. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terry Tempest Williams. And Terry is well-known and much-loved in uh, literary circles for her books Finding Beauty in a Broken World, Refuge, and Unnatural History of Family and Place. Terry, in your book When Women Were Birds, it's clear birds in your native Utah are near and dear to your heart. What is it about birds that that really resonates with you? How are they so close to your soul, and uh, how are they a metaphor for you, for for women? 
I think birds are mediators between earth and spirit. I think birds are the great travelers. You know, when I think about my greatest travel book, Rick, it's Peterson's Field Guide to Western Birds. My grandmother gave me that when I was five years old. And I would pour over those color plates, and I would imagine the birds before I saw them. And then going out to Great Salt Lake as a child, I would go, ah, there is the white-faced ibis. There is meadowlark. Mm. There's, you know, the wren in the, the reeds. And I would write down the date that I saw them and the place that I saw them. So in a sense, my field guides have become my travel journals. And later as a naturalist, I really can see what birds Mm. used to be there that you don't see anymore. You used to see rafts of redheads on the Great Salt Lake. You don't anymore Mm -hmm. um, because of pesticides, because of loss of habitat. So birds to me mark the moment, and they're certainly tied to my grandmother. And with all of her grandchildren, we all have those field guides that she gave us as children, and they become sacred texts. Now, it's not just birds, because you are also enthusiastic about prairie dogs, of all things. <laughs> tell me about your fascination and your, your, um, your love of prairie dogs. Well, I have to tell you, that is not matched also by members of my family. <laughs> um, they're, a pest. Up, they're considered a pest by a lot of people, aren't they? Well, and growing up, you know, I come from a family of, of brothers, and they would go out on the sage flats with their shotguns and 22s, and they were called pop guts um, for reasons you can only imagine. Pop guts. But, oh, my goodness. And they were expendable. You know, you talk mm-hmm. about the government viewing Utahns as virtual uninhabitants with nuclear testing. Well, prairie dogs are the ultimate <laughs> uninhabitants, which is so ironic because they're a creature that understands community. Inside a prairie dog community, you can find over 283 different species of animals that are dependent on the prairie dog towns. Everything from rattlesnakes to burrowing owls to deer, antelope, marsh hawks, snowy plovers. Take away the prairie dog, and you take away a varied world. And these prairie dogs have this amazingly sophisticated um, community, like a town with uh, language and everything? They have burrows that are unbelievable, that stretch miles. I only wish I could see underground to know what that would be like, that world. Um, They have such a sophisticated language system with prairie dog grammar. You know, for example, if you were to walk across a prairie dog town, they would say, blonde man with a red shirt walking through. If you came by the next day carrying a gun, (laughs) they would say, blonde "Blonde man, man, red shirt with gun. Um, Blonde man, red shirt with dog. I mean, they are that sophisticated. So next time you see a prairie dog, you have to stop and listen to their alert calls. Good-looking blonde man with travel guide. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really wild. There was one study done by a biologist named Konsolvitovich, and please don't ask me to repeat that again, his last name. And what he found when they drug a European ferret across the town, a new vocabulary word came to be. When they did that 50 miles in another direction, that same word appeared in that prairie dog town. I mean, there's so much we don't know about how animals communicate. And are they still endangered, or are they coming back, or are they they just a pest for people who want to keep their golf course without holes in it? Utah prairie dogs are threatened. They would be on the endangered species list, except for it's too political because Hmm. of the ranching communities and the golf courses. You're exactly right. But there's great organizations like Wild Earth Guardians that are making sure that 
they're going to still be around for as long as they have been. These are Pleistocene creatures. Our special guest on Travel with Rick Steves this week is Terry Tempest-Williams. It's a conversation we first broadcast in 2013 following the release of her book, When Women Were Birds. Terry's also received praise over the years for a number of books she's written about the wisdom that the desert has taught her. Her guide to her favorite American national parks is called The Hour of Land, and it's now available in paperback. Terry's website has more about her books and her work as a citizen activist. It's at coyoteclan.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sally's on the line in LaVille, Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick and Terry. Uh, I was appreciating uh, Utah. And, you know, I've been to a majority of the national parks in our country, and I cannot think of a more magical place than southern Utah and Canyonlands in particular. I experienced one of the most amazing, looking back, 24-hour periods ever in the southeast quadrant of Canyonlands, known as the Needles District, in an area called Elephant Canyon. And I had never heard of it, but a, a friend invited me to the area, and one day we headed out for a walk into this magical, otherworldly land of sandstone pillars and buttes and mesas and into this elephant canyon. And the the day turned from sunny to billowing thunderstorms just as we were passing through this very narrow slot canyon. And we got out and huddled under a rock ledge and just sat there alone seeing no one in this vast wilderness. And I thought back to what it was like for the Native Americans who lived in the region, the Anasazi, and after that we uh, trekked back to this uh, little wilderness campground where we heated water, and uh, I took a bath beneath the starry night sky after an amazing sunset, and you can just imagine being out in true darkness and silhouetted buttes and mesas and hot water heated on the open fire and the starry sky unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Truly, truly an amazing, mystical, magical, colorful land uh, that just touched the, the poet and the deep spirit. And I could hardly believe it was in America, and I thought just how few people in America would know that something like this existed. Now, Sally, you're from Pennsylvania, so you were just visiting Utah. Uh, Terry, as a resident of Utah, does, does that uh, resonate with you? Sally, you must be a poet. You just sent me into a trance. I was right there with you. And I think oftentimes visitors from outside of Utah can appreciate what is here sometimes even more than those of us who live here. I think of another resident of Pennsylvania who wrote so beautifully about America's Red Rock wilderness, and that was Edward Abbey. He was also from Pennsylvania. He wrote a beautiful book called Desert Solitaire. Have you read that? I have, actually. I think his descriptions, like yours, are, are so beautiful. It, it truly is a landscape of the imagination, as you say. Mm. To the west of Canyonlands, there was this landscape that reminded me of the moon. I thought, where in the world am I? And 
just the progression. I, I had come from the West through Zion, across through Bryce, and finishing off with Canyonlands. And after that night of bathing beneath the stars, uh, I awoke to this horizontal sandstorm just mm. blasting. Literally, I was sandblasted out of that spot. <laughs> there, no, there was you no, no real refuge, and quickly we gathered camp and barely could toss it into the car and survive and flee this sandblasting like I never imagined would occur. And then where we relocated, soon after that came a blizzard and a foot of snow atop. So well, you it, realize it's still a landscape under construction. It's erosional, and it's what you experienced is is why there's windows in stones and arches and bridges. Mm, there, there's no place like it uh, that I know of in the world. And I, I love how a, there are conspirators that say Mars doesn't exist. They've just simply taken pictures of Utah. <laughs> you know, Terry, it's interesting because in your book, When Women Were Birds, you wrote... Indoor religion bored me. Outdoor religion did not. And listening to Sally uh, describe her experience in Utah, it is almost a religious experience. It's palpable. It's sensual. It's spiritual. Like, how can you, how can you not feel that and know that deep in the fabric of your mm. being to stand beneath the stars, nothing but you and God and the great, vast creation? Uh, and so... I just really applaud you, Terry and Rick, for all of your public efforts to saving and defending and giving voice to the the care and the wise stewarding of mm. this. The beautiful thing, Sally, is these are your lens, too, and yes. your voice matters. Yes, and I speak mine as much opportunity as I can. It is my heart's passion and life's work as well. Sally, thank you so much for your call. Those are beautiful sentiments and inspirational. Thank Thank you, you, Sally. Thank you, Terry. Bye-bye. Terry, when I listen to Sally and when I think about your experience and the way you've shared it so poetically and spiritually almost in your books and and also I think about um, our community and our nation and and how high the stakes are, it really is quite hopeful, wouldn't you say, uh, considering what we can do when we get together. Absolutely. I think about Wallace Stegner, a native son of Utah. He often talked about the geography of hope and how we can try to create a society to match the scenery. It's what I call the open space of democracy. These public lands belong to all of us. And I I do think it is immensely hopeful because it, it transcends time as we know it on the human scale. But as you say, it does require our vigilance. And I think it's what defines us as human beings. And the national parks are a uniquely American ideal. And we have to protect that, especially at a time when there are those powerful corporate interests that say what we need is oil. And I think there are, there are many others in this country that are saying what we need is a future, and that future is in the land. Terry, it's been a delight talking to you. I hope we can uh, cross paths again, and uh, best wishes. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take special care. Next up, a tour guide from Italy tells us how he finds a desert refuge in the vast Sahara in North Africa. 
877-333-7425 is our phone number. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Yo viaggio con Rick Steves. I'm Alfio Di Mauro from Catania, and I was Sicilian for I Travel with Rick Steves. Yo viaggio con Rick Steves. If you make a living showing people around your native Italy, where do you go to get away from it all? Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, let's meet Riccardo Panareo. He lives along the Adriatic coast of central Italy. But when he needs a real getaway, he follows the call of the desert, specifically the Sahara in North Africa. He's here to tell us about his journeys, taking his motorbike on long rides across the Sahara. Riccardo, thanks for joining us. Ciao, buonasera, everybody. Ricardo, when you want to go on vacation, first of all, just describe the adventure. What do you do on your vacation? Well, you know, first of all, the vacation starts much earlier than the moment in which you lock your door and you go. So a trip like that requires preparation, physical, because it's strenuous, uh, requires preparing your vehicle, because your vehicle is your horse. You Americans love horses. And you know how much care you take of your horses every day, talking to the horse, listening to the horse, the motorbike becomes a horse. I know that many of you don't understand me or maybe they don't believe me, but I talk to my bikes because that's what is returning me home eventually. So preparation and then it's a mixture of adventure, traveling. And, you know, I come from Italy where there is such an overwhelming uh, architecture and history, uh, human structure, intensity. intensity. So yeah. I need nature. So the opposite of Italy might be the Sahara. Now, where do you go in the Sahara generally? Well, uh, you know, the Sahara is so huge. (laughs) So I've been in uh, Tunisia, I've been in Algeria, I crossed it, I went down to uh, Niger or Niger, and Mm -hmm. then uh, used to be called Old Volta one day. Today is Burkina Faso, which is already towards the other end of the Sahara. It's already going towards the Niger River, etc. So on a typical already... adventure, how many kilometers would you put on your motorbike? Oof, it depends. I did different ones. Let's say a crossing of the Sahara straight line, it will be about uh, close to 3,000 kilometers more or less. So 1,800 miles yeah. on your motorbike. And, yeah. you know, your image of the Sahara would be sand dunes and so on. Are, mm. are the roads oh. paved or what? Oh, what is no, the... you know, that's what everybody, including me, before going, you know, when we think about Sahara, we think about sand yeah. and sand dunes. There are hundreds of different landscapes. There are huge mountains, rocks. There are sand dunes, of course, but then sand. Sand, there are 200 types of sand, you know, hard one. Fesh, fesh, which is the one that he fell in, he would never get out. Now, my experience in the Sahara is in Morocco, mm. and there's just like vast, like a big parking lot almost mm. that goes forever, and mm. it's a hard pan. Yeah. And there's no real road, and if you didn't know where you're going, you could get completely lost. Yeah, well, that's part of the fan, but also, if you are not careful, it could be a cause of, of big trouble, you know, yeah. because now... It's a little easier because now you can use these GPS and things. Right. Although that is a knife very sharp in the sense that if you have a very sharp knife, you can cut a lot of things, but you can cut your finger as well. I mean, if you rely on only on this technology, if this technology drops you, then you are, you know, gone. You know, it's like your computer. When your computer gets jammed, we don't know what to do. You so know? you're you're saying with your uh, motorbike, you also want to be able to manage without all of oh, the yes. electronics. Well, uh, my first trip to the Sahara was in 1983. Okay, long before so, this kind of thing. Uh, so when you're biking, are you on dirt or are you on pavement or? 
uh, there is everything. There mm. are roads, paved roads up to a certain extent, and then it depends what part of Sahara you want to go. Right. It's like if, if you go here, if you want to go to a tiny little town, you have a tiny little trail. Oh, okay. you know? Now, you, so, you wrote that you love riding bikes on dirt. Why, yes. why do you like to ride your bike on I dirt? I don't know. Ask my wife because she says that uh, probably this is my uh, Peter Pan syndrome. I mean, undeveloped childhood. Because, I, you know, so I you're love, a little boy on your bike yeah, when you get you going know, on the dirt. When, it's your when, big dirt bike yeah, lot. Yeah. When she sees me going out with, with a dirt motorbike, because I have two of them, one for a normal human being and the other one for, for the dirt. And she starts saying, oh, not again. <laughs> I'm speaking with Ricardo Panareo, and he's an Italian friend of mine who's a tour guide, and on vacation he bikes in the Sahara with his motorbike. How vast is it when you're in the middle of all of this? I mean, you, you say you live in Italy, which is so intense crowded, yeah. crowded with people and full of fiats honking their horn. Talk about the vastness of the Sahara uh, it's, Desert. It's, uh, you know, you cannot really describe. It's something that you feel so little things when you are there in the middle. And uh, although I come from a country where it's so full of people, that, but then at the end of the day in the Sahara, when you find another group of people, you go and camp with them, and then you look at these people, you behave different. Those people behave different as they would do when they were at home because, you know, you really feel human in this huge theater, and you really need somebody help. You know, we have to be together. We, you so know, when we you cross to... paths with a human being in the middle oh, of the it's, Sahara, it's, it's, big. it's a festival. Oh, yes, it's a festival. You know, Tell me even about if that. Who just... would you meet? What's it like? Well, European people, obviously. Yeah. People have the same craziness. Usually one the, with a motorcycle, usually? Oh, no, usually there are four-wheel drives. Four-wheel drives. You, you yeah. find also motorbikes. But then, every now and then, there are little villages there. And you have to, to be very, very careful when you arrive to the village. We have not to pollute those people. You know, I want to That's explain that. That's very important, I would uh, You know, because I've seen also scenes of people, European, you know, with a motorbike uh, running across a village. Mm. You know, I think that's like slapping the face of the people living there. Uh, usually when I arrive to a village, I stop maybe half a mile before. I stop the motorbike. I try to clean myself because I'm dirty with the sand and dust and and then I approach on foot the village. I want to talk to the... You walk your bicycle yeah. into the village. Now, I leave the bicycle out. Oh, you do? And you walk in? And I walk wow. and then I try to talk to them. And then, uh, you know, I ask permission right. to, to be Describe welcomed. for me, Ricardo, a, a tiny village you would meet in the middle of nowhere in this oh, yeah. sea of sand. What is it like? Well, maybe ten huts, straw huts, using the, the palm trees. Because usually... These little villages are w w in the few places where you have a little bit of water. So if you have water, you have palms. Palm, palm trees. Palm yeah. trees, it's, so it's everything oasis, This would be people. your classic oasis village. Oh, yes. So yeah, you're in the middle exactly. of this sea of sand where you would just die if you had no way to get out. And then in the middle, a little oasis, mm -hmm. a little bit of water, a couple of palm trees, and ten huts. So I try to always to keep in mind, I am the guests. Right. I mean, I am the one asking the permission to the people. I'm the one out of the place. Do you know where you're going to sleep and when you're going to well, sleep? Well, usually, well, a sleeping bag. I mean, if you go with a motorbike, you don't have much of a choice. I've been mm -hmm. sleeping in, in wrecks or cars, you know, because if you have a problem with a car, most of the times you have just to abandon it. You just you abandon jump, it. <laughs> uh, you, you jump on somebody else's car. <laughs> what can you do? You are maybe... 300 miles from the closest right. garage. What are, what are they going to do? So you catch the next camel out and uh, goodbye. That, 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 that's, uh, that's it. That's what I always put in my in my balance. There is the possibility that you drop your, your bike. Yeah. So you actually sleep in the ruins of a car. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, whatever. But very often they offer me, uh, you know, some Hospitality. Places. That's, I think, all over the world. The poorer are the people and the more hospital they are. They share the little thing that they have. 
And sometimes I feel kind of, uh, how can I say, really uh, sad because I know that if I sell my motorbike, I can give food to this village for maybe a year. Yeah. And this this is something that uh, you feel bad about that. This we do not understand unless we travel in this part of the world. And they will actually put themselves into difficulties by giving you what they can't afford to give you. It's, it's, uh, you found the same in the embarrassing. Sahara. That's the, the, embarrassing. What, what I was trying to explain. I couldn't find the proper word, right. but it's this one: embarrassing. I mean, my, you know, the money that I have, the value in my vehicle, etc. Yeah. And then I see these people so nice and uh, so poor, uh, so poor, but still so generous. Yeah, you know, I've been eating with them. Of course, forget about plates and forks. You know, yeah. you eat everything so, with the hands from so the same So you just eat trait. with them, and, and oh, yeah. do, do you have concerns about your health? Or you well, just, it's there, a matter of survival. I think that if you do those trips, you better leave at home these concerns. Otherwise, yeah. you go to Lucerne and have a nice. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do about water? Do you have? Well, you must have just. You, you take some water with you. And then yeah. it depends. You have to plan where you're going because right. very often then uh, I go with a bike. But if I have to do some particularly long trails, I have right. to have support. So I have to go with somebody who can take my water as well. I mean, maybe four-wheel drive. Oh, so you yeah. can do this in coordination with you a... Have, uh, you know, in, in some difficult areas, the local police don't allow you to start the uh, trail on your own. You so have to arrive there. this is interesting. You, they, don't, they don't want people no. just out there. So this is sort of organized tourism. You in, have to get there in the last village, uh-huh. and you declare to the police, I would like to do that trail. Okay, you stay here. Maybe tomorrow somebody comes. Maybe you have to wait a week. Right. A different concept of time. So know, th- there so. is tourism, though, in these countries, and they welcome you coming right. in because you're helping the economy. Sure. Sure. The only thing now in some of these countries, as we all know recently, that are right. uh, for Western, you know, people that are a bit of a safety issues, you know, so you this, know you and just especially in be, Algeria. So you need to be smart as where is a Western person going yeah. to be safe. Yeah. yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about exploring the Sahara on a motorbike with Ricardo Panareo. Ricardo, do you sit at a campfire? Do you light a campfire just mm. to be sort of all alone? And That's another another thing. There is fewer and fewer wood that you find yeah. on the way. So, in fact, with a motorbike, you don't have the chance. You have no, no space. But once I've done with my wife, we stayed there for about three months with my wife. We yeah. four-wheel drive. And every time we found a tiny little piece of wood dry, put it on, on the roof. Uh, as because, you drove, you, know, you could pick up the uh, wood. Yeah, because yeah. that's like gold. And if you don't use it, the first village, you, you give it to the people. Every village wants wood. Because, you know, Sahara is becoming bigger and bigger. For these people there, it's more and more difficult every day to find the wood. Every day they have to walk for wood. Farther away because, you know, mm. it's, it's becoming, the desert is becoming more deserted. You gain an empathy for the people who have to live in this. Uh, uh, well, I feel very embarrassed when, when I'm there because I come from a very lucky part of the world. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, and, but still those people give you a sense of great pride. Dignity. Dignity, absolutely. You know, the fact that if you approach them in the proper way, uh, sometimes, you know, the kids throw me stones at me because mm-hmm. years ago there was a famous motorbike across the Sahara called the Paris-Dakar, mm-hmm. you know, starting in right. Paris. When they saw me arriving doing more or less the same trails, they thought that I was the same of them. Oh. And since those people just rush across the village and they, ah, I you see. know. So you have the, the, the thoughtful way to do it. Uh, park you park your stop, bike, you know, clean up, you, and walk you, into town. You have to be, you know, to be accepted by the yeah. people. So you go humble, humble, you know. But that's not only the Respectful. Side. I think everywhere. That's, that's good travel. That's good travel. You know, the fact that you have more money in the pockets doesn't mean that you're better yeah. than those, actually, most of the times, yeah. you know. You must develop a relationship with the desert itself, a relationship with the Sahara. What is your relationship with the with the desert as you're traveling there? Well, the desert owns me. I mean, <laughs> uh, in the sense that 
The first time you go to the Sahara, you just go for fun, adventure, and then once you're there, then you can't stay without it. Uh, it's difficult to say. It there becomes are books, a part of you, huh? There are books, there are beautiful movies, you know, made uh, just to describe this kind of illness that might take you if you've been there the first time. You're just in love for it. Uh, right. There are no words. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jeff's on the phone from Brownsburg, Indiana. Jeff, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? I've, it's been fascinating to listen I've only been to the Sahara twice. Um, the second time, I, I camped in southern Algeria with the Tuaregs for about 15 where, days. Where, where? Uh, we uh, landed down in Tamarasad and Tamarasad, eventually yeah. slowly made our way over to Janet. Janet, what a pearl, what a beautiful place. Yeah, it is. It really is. But, yeah, we just slowly took it, and mm. it just was fascinating. I, we had a land cruiser mm-hmm. that had 200 thousand plus kilometers on it. Well, that's a brand and new the, for brand new for that area. <laughs> it, was, it was. But by the end of the by the end of the fifteen days there wasn't a piece of chrome left on it. It it's very brutal out there. I it is. I admire your uh now, Jeff, spirit it sounds like Ric- Ricardo did it in the uh, the wild and aggressive and adventurous way in, on a motorbike, and and you did it in a more comfortable way on a. Oh, on a, absolutely! Now, tell us yeah. about tell us about for the for the novice. Let's say I just wanted to spend uh, ten days down in the Sahara. You're in a four wheel vehicle with six or eight tourists, like in a safari or something like that. Or no, no, actually, like? there were two of us who uh, a friend of mine who went to Afghanistan with me a couple years before that, and it, it's a little touchy when you're trying to contract out with someone overseas, as you all both know. Um, but we found someone I felt comfortable with, a uh, family that ran a tourism agency, I was at it. Mm-hmm. And two of us flew into Algeria, and then I spent a couple of days up on the coast, and then flew mm-hmm. down to Tamarazet, mm-hmm. and uh, joined, there were three in a land cruiser, and I'll tell you, that five people in a land cruiser in the desert, even in you know, winter, is hot, and mm-hmm. plenty of people in there. In the day. Um, do you get up early so you can have a few hours of, of relative cool and take a siesta in the, in the middle of the heat, Ricardo? You know, it depends which vehicle. I mean, it, it depends how you are visiting Sahara. You can visit mm-hmm. on food, you can go with an organized group, you can go with a four-wheel drive. If you go with a motorbike, you've got to be very careful because, you know, the motorbike is less stable than a four-wheel drive. So it's right. dangerous with a motorbike. You've got to be careful. So you have to start very early in the morning because still about 10 o'clock is still cold because you are saying it's hot. I mean, I don't know, uh, Jeff, what time of the year it went, but if you go in the winter, till 10 o'clock is freezing cold ah. uh, there. Then in, within an hour... You are in the in the heat. In the winter, there's a huge difference in oh, the temperature. Oh yes, then. absolutely. Yeah. It can go below zero Celsius right. in the winter. No joke. So freezing, uh, and then freezing. all of a sudden up where and you then, need the sunscreen. You know, so if you want to use uh, sand where still it's rather compact, you have to do in the morning because it's still cold. Because then after ten, eleven o'clock, the heat will make the sand softer, which means more difficult to negotiate. And then there is another thing: the sun. The sun, when it's just above you will give you no shades where you're driving. So you cannot really see the color of the sand. And it's all the same color. So it's but it's not up. the same sand, and then you might end up in the wrong patch. Ah, so yeah. high noon, it's more dangerous because, yes, because the you sun don't have the shadow. No, no shade, no shadows anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then, then mm-hmm. you know, that's the... But even with a four-wheel drive, I mean, you don't fall with a four-wheel drive, but you get bogged. Yeah. So, Jeff, in your four-wheel drive, or in your vehicle, did you, did you get an early start in order to avoid the heat, or how did you plan that? Um, we we were fairly leisurely. We would uh, we would camp 
usually an outcropping is where they've camped for thousands of years. Um, mm-hmm. You would find these locations, and sometimes you would find paintings. And yeah, and did you find uh, some some ancient paintings, prehistorical? Because around Janet there are some beautiful ones. I'm sure they showed oh, you some. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Around Janet, and actually, I mean, even further uh, mm-hmm. west, there's quite a few. Mm-hmm. So this is but in yeah, southern we, Algeria. You're talking southern about Algeria, yeah. southern Algeria, southern yeah, and east, southeast. Yes. All right. So I see you somewhere down there. Inshallah, as Inshallah. they say. <laughs> is good Allah wants. Uh, if God wants it. Thank you, Jeff, for your call. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about exploring the Sahara with Ricardo Pandareo. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Margie from Pleasanton, California, sent us an email. And uh, Ricardo Margie wrote, My husband enjoys motorcycle adventures. How do you stay in touch with your wife while in these remote places? Well, that's the reason why I go on a motorbike, so my (laughs) wife cannot reach me. You know, does it make sense? You have an excuse, (laughs) don't you? I'm in the Sahara, dear. I'll be back in two weeks. Two two weeks is a little too short for the Sahara, but anyhow, that's the point. So, Margie, your husband wants to have uh, go on his motorcycle. (laughs) Don't push him to how to keep in touch. But if I can give you a suggestion, let him go. Because if you let him go, he will be back. You sound like you speak uh, with experience. Yes, I do. 30 years with the same wife, you know. Beautiful. Well, we like antiques in Italy, you know, so. Ricardo, you you talk about being 300 miles, 500 kilometers away from the closest village, and it, it makes you feel like naked in nature. Describe that again. Well, because, you know, it's probably like when some people go into the Cologne, huge cathedral, you yeah. enter this cathedral you and, become you, small and you stare and, and you say, gosh, look at this. I mean, I'm nothing compared with this. And this art is even, is even 10 times more than that. You, I wish you could see the stars in the night of the Sahara, when the, probably the, the, the closest bulbs is about 400 kilometers away. So, so the nearest light bulb is 400 kilometers it's, away. It's, it's, <laughs> you, you have to put the, the sunglasses because it's so, even without the, the moon, there are so many stars. It's so white. I mean, it's really? incredible. Most people in Europe and the United States have, have no idea it, how bright the night sky can be. It's, it's incredible. You know, but you have to be, well, I'm sure there are people listening to us that they go sailing, maybe they go a couple hundred miles away when they sail. Out because the, the Sahara yeah. is an ocean. That's right. The Sahara is an ocean. And the camels are the ships. Exactly. I'm no Rick Steves. Difference. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been sailing the Sahara with Ricardo Panareo. Ricardo, thanks so much for taking us on an adventure that a lot of us would dream about, but not too many will be able to Well, don't lose experience. the hope. Work uh, on it. I Work would love it. to do it myself. Grazie to everybody. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at KUER in Salt Lake City for studio help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand. Check in each week at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.